Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Worldwide Weird. I'm your host, Linda. Today, it's a hot one today. 27 degrees and I'm going to sit in a very hot, but still not the hottest room in my house, but still a hot room without a fan because I'm nice like that and I try to keep the sound quality up. I also really don't want to edit this. So I'm gonna sit here out of the goodness of my heart and tell you a horrible story. I'm gonna suffer just for you, but look, we'll get through it together, okay? I'm gonna tell you the story today about Canada's most infamous serial killer like the worst one in Canada like proof that they're not all nice all right get rid of that stereotype and if you're eating a sandwich right now get rid of that as well in fact maybe just don't eat anything for this one and if you do and you feel sick in a half an hour well don't come at me all right I've already warned you I'm suffering enough in this heat Fuck me, it's it's a hot one today, Wally. It's a hot one today. Right, today we're going to talk about this serious, ah, oh, just an absolute piece of shit. Robert Willie Picton, also known as the Pig Farm Killer, also known as the Pig Headed Killer, and also known as Pork Chop Rob. Wow, that last one. So this lad, just awful, right? So he was born on the 24th of October in 1949 in Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. That's just outside of Vancouver. He's one brother called David and one sister who we won't really mention much in the story because I think she seems more normal. So the father wasn't directly involved in raising the children. His mother Louise was the one that reared them and she was a workaholic and she ran the family meat business there in Port Coquitlam and she looked after the kids basically. So she expected them to work as hard as she did. So she made them put in long hours slopping pigs and looking after other animals even on school days. And as a boy when Willie wanted to hide from someone as you do, we'd crawl into a gutted carcass of a large pig. Real normal, right? So at age 12, Willie was the proud owner of a pet calf that he raised from birth. He loved this calf and, you know, it was his only companion and his parents told him that this calf was allowed to be his pet. So he took care of it and, you know, he loved it to the best of his abilities. So as he and the calf grew, so did their bond, but he wasn't aware that the family never actually had any intention of keeping this calf any longer than was necessary and his parents had the animals slaughtered so he never got over the grief and betrayal of losing this calf and his family's traumatic torment reminding him that you know they'd be sitting at dinner and his parents would keep reminding him that they were eating his pet calf like real just really fucked up stuff right so it's from here that he learned this weird lesson where he felt if he got close to anything or anyone then he would become hurt himself 
it would be safe enough to say that this event really shaped him. He spoke about this to people he met years later when he was much older after it happened, you know. So Willie wasn't great in school. He'd been put into special education classes and he eventually dropped out. He was described as having severely bad personal hygiene issues as as a child and into his adulthood. He smelled of manure, body odour and dead animals and he had a visceral fear of water because his mother used to hose him down like a dog when he was a child. So the few friends he had would actually beg him to bathe and he never dated. In his entire life he never had a girlfriend. Women were said to just be repulsed by him, by his smell and he was just, he was meant to be quite creepy as well which seems obvious. He was really awkward and he had a really weird sense of humour and he just unsettled people so he spent a lot of his life in isolation. On the evening of October the 16th in 1967 when Willie's younger brother Dave was 16 and had just acquired his driver's licence he took his dad's 1960 red truck from the farm and he headed along East Dominion Avenue. It was about 7.40 and just ahead of him on the right hand side one of the neighbourhood kids, a 14 year old named Tim Barrett, was walking down the road. Now how it happened exactly no one really knows but Dave basically slammed right into him. He went home and he told his parents what had happened and they helped him cover it up. Apparently they just sprung into action. So they went back to where Tim Barrett was and they rolled him into a ditch. Um, his cause of death was actually drowning because he was in a puddle in the ditch when they rolled him in basically. They contacted a local mechanic that same night and asked to get some work done on the car like there was a dent and stuff but he was really suspicious of the whole thing it just didn't seem right he wouldn't fix any of the damage. So the next day this mechanic saw the news of the hit and run and he rang the police and told them what happened the night before and how suspicious and how shifty it all seemed. So Dave was actually convicted in juvenile court for leaving the scene of an accident and he wasn't allowed to drive again until the age of 21. He basically seemed to get a slap on the wrist. So people who knew the Pictons always commented on the house just being upside down, you know. Farmyard animals would just stroll in and out. The kids were always just walking around smelling of pig manure and were constantly made fun of by their classmates. The family was just generally considered to be quite odd. So when both of the parents passed away, Picton and his siblings sold off most of the pig farm to urban developers and they reduced the farm to 6.5 hectares. After the reduction, he and his brother maintained a small livestock operation. Picton lived in the property in a trailer home far away from where his brother was. Instead of putting the effort into the farm in itself, in 1996 the brothers registered a non-profit charity called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Now these charity events, inverted commas charity events, happened in a converted slaughterhouse on the premises. Neighbours complained of rowdiness, drug use, drunkenness and noise from parties attended by as many as 1700 people at a time. Frequent guests of the party would be members of the police, members of the Hells Angels who were known to be involved in criminal activity in the town and with them they'd bring sex workers as well from the downtown east side. 
The downtown east side is a neighbourhood of Vancouver and in the 80s and even up until now it was an area that was well known for its drug use and sex work and it's where a lot of homeless people seem to end up. In the early 80s prostitutes were going missing from the area however it was as if these women just were invisible. Vancouver Mayor Gordon Campbell told journalists in a move which I'm going to add by the way did not ruin or seem to even affect his career remotely right he actually said and I quote while the murders of these sex workers were unfortunate their deaths were ultimately for the best because citizens wanted them off the streets end quote what a nice guy so those in high risk positions such as sex workers or runaways or people with drug addictions and mental health issues were the primary targets of Picton. It, it was well known within the sex worker community that there was an active serial killer way before any investigation took place. On March the 23rd in 1997 in Port Coquitlam an elderly couple driving on a rural road outside of Vancouver spotted a woman who was covered in blood and wounded and was flagging them down for help while she was covered in blood around her wrist as well there was also a handcuff dangling from the wrist the couple took the woman whose name was wendy lynn isater to the nearest hospital wendy had been stabbed numerous times to the point of being partially disemboweled but for some reason she still managed to stay conscious so she told the hospital staff and the police that she was engaging in sex work in the downtown east side in an area called the low track she said that despite the overpowering smell and filth she agreed to have sex with a guy that she knew as willie in exchange for alcohol and drugs so she got in his truck and he drove her out to his pig farm in the port coquitlam after the consensual sex Wendy asked Willie could she call her boyfriend from his phone. When she was about to dial the number, he actually came behind her and just really sneakily locked a pair of handcuffs on her wrist. She panicked and she started to fight Willie and he wasn't able to get the other handcuff on her. She told police that Willie then came at her with a butcher's knife and she fought him off and eventually got the knife away from him and actually slashed his throat with it. His wound was so serious, he passed out from blood loss and in spite of her own serious injuries she ran to the nearest road where she eventually found the couple. What she didn't know was that Willie Picton was actually in the same hospital at the same time. He'd somehow recovered enough to drive himself to hospital after she ran. Police questioned Willie and in one of his pockets an orderly found a handcuff key, the same key that would unlock the cuff around Wendy's wrist. So a few days later Willie was charged with attempted murder aggravated assault and unlawful confinement. Wendy's injuries were so severe that she remained in the hospital recovering for several weeks. Unsurprisingly she was absolutely petrified of Willie and she refused to testify against him. Though they had the couple's testimony as well as medical staffs and the physical evidence of the key matching the cuffs on the wrist, without Wendy's testimony the prosecution actually decided that it would be best to drop the charges and they also said that because she was addicted to drugs and a prostitute a jury would be unlikely to actually believe her 
that's really sad so even though they didn't actually press charges they kept the evidence that they collected from Willie and his clothes and rubber boots would sit on a shelf in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's evidence locker in the two years before Isotor's attack 21 women had vanished from the downtown east side yet the Vancouver Police Department refused to investigate any of the disappearances since most of the women were sex workers and many of these women were indigenous Unfortunately, indigenous people, especially women, are discriminated against in Canada regularly, especially back then, and they tend to not have the same compassion from the law when they go missing or they're the victims of like really violent crimes. Part of Willie's job was to take the pork processing scraps to a rendering plant in Vancouver where they would be turned into products like lipstick and soap and stuff. So after delivering the scraps, he'd actually then drive down to the east side and avail of the porn shops and the sex workers there. To most of the addicts and sex workers on the low track, Willie seemed like an okay, if really smelly, guy. As time went on though, some residents began to notice that sometimes when girls left with Willie, they just didn't come back. And many of them actually did go to the police with their suspicions, but they were ignored. The police weren't interested in investigating crimes against sex workers or indigenous women even when there was a suspect handed to them on a plate by multiple women it wasn't just sex workers and addicts on the east side that were suspicious of willie though bill hiscox was a day laborer who worked at the picton brothers salvage yard and he would have to go to the pig farm to pick up his paychecks he described the place as being really creepy and he knew about the rash of missing women and he knew that Willie frequented the low track area for looking for women. He also noticed that when women went to the farm, they sometimes went missing right afterwards. So in 1998, after hearing about Isidore's attack and again in 1999, Hiscox went to the police with these suspicions and he told them everything he knew, including that he heard from a friend that some of the missing women's belongings were in Willie's trailer. He told them how Willie would joke about his meat grinder and tell friends that if they ever needed to get rid of a body, that was the way to do it. Hiscox also told the police that he suspected Willie might actually be serving human meat at the Piggy's Palace. Police took a statement and they promised that they would follow up they questioned Willie who denied everything and they got his consent to search the property but they never actually did search the property this time. Not long after the second time Bill Hiscox called in with his own suspicions another person called in with an even more disturbing tip. The man told police that his sister Lynn Alingson had been living with Willie Picton for a while. Then Lynn told him that she had to flee in fear of her life after witnessing something horrific. Lynn told him that one night Willie had brought a woman home from the low track to party. She said she remembered the woman had a pretty colour nail polish on her toenails. At one point the woman and Willie went into his room to have sex and Lynn stayed in the living room and did some drugs until she passed out. She said she woke up some time later and thought she heard a noise. She went outside to investigate and she saw a light was on in the slaughterhouse. She told her brother that she went to the slaughterhouse and opened the door to see what was going on. That's when she saw the woman's painted toes dangling right in front of her face. The woman had been strung up and disemboweled like a hog. Willie was slicing the flesh off her thigh. Lynn screamed which caught Willie's attention. 
She said she promised him she only wanted drugs and cash and she'd go away and never tell anyone. And Willie actually agreed to this and he let her go. However, the entire tip was hearsay and in order to act on it, the police would need to hear it from Lynn, the actual witness. But Lynn was so involved with the Hells Angels that she really just didn't want to talk to the police. Later that year, Inspector Kim Rosmo, who had developed a technique called geographic profiling to find patterns in unsolved crimes, went to his superiors with a shocking theory. There was a serial killer preying on the poor women of the low track. Rosmo's theory was dismissed, but nevertheless he stood by it even as the police continued to publicly deny that there was no serial killer. For his stubbornness, he was demoted. Meanwhile, the family and friends of the missing women were crying out for an investigation. Finally, after a lot of public pressure, in January of 2001, the RCMP and the Vancouver PD launched a missing women's task force. As soon as they opened a tip line, it was flooded with calls. Several of these calls mentioned Willie Picton and his pig farm, yet the police did absolutely nothing for over a year. It was only when a truck driver who made deliveries to the farm called in with a completely unrelated tip that the police actually did spring into action. The Vancouver police executed a search of Willie's trailer on February the 6th of 2002 to look for illegal weapons. The trailer was beyond filthy, but in all the clutter, an investigator spotted an asthma inhaler that had been prescribed to Serena Abbott's way, who was one of the missing women. Investigators obtained a second search warrant, this time for any evidence of the missing women in the area. In Willie's trailer, police found clothing, shoes, jewellery and ID cards belonging to several of the missing women. The entire property was searched. It was over 40 acres containing multiple outbuildings and a salvage yard. The pig farm became the largest crime scene in Canadian history. Investigators took 200,000 DNA samples and seized 600,000 exhibits. Archaeologists and forensic experts needed heavy equipment to sift through 383,000 cubic yards of soil in search of human remains. The cost of the investigation was estimated at nearly $70 million. In two outbuildings, buckets were found containing the skulls which had been sliced in half with a bandsaw and the hands and feet of Serena Abbotsway, Andrea Josbury and Mona Wilson. Other remains were found in plastic garbage barrels, but perhaps even more disturbingly, investigators found more human remains cut into pieces and stored in freezers alongside ground pork and other cuts of meat. The massive search also uncovered hundreds of tiny bone fragments scattered throughout the property, indicating that at least some of the victims had been fed to the pigs. Jesus. I told you not to eat that bacon sandwich for anyone that's eaten a bacon sandwich. On February 22nd, 2002, Willie Picton was arrested and he was charged with the first degree murders of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. Serena Abbotsway disappeared in August 2001 and her foster mother reported her missing a few days later. Serena was known as a fierce but loving child and a very protective sister. She struggled with a drug habit but she managed to check in with her mother by phone every single day for 13 years. 
She was described as being extremely protective of her foster siblings. The other victim, Mona Lee Wilson, went missing in November of the same year after a visit to her doctor. Her family notes her absence when she didn't join them on Christmas of that year. Mona was from a small First Nations reserve in Alberta and she'd struggled with addiction since her teenage years. The search of the Picton farm continued for 22 months and it eventually recovered DNA from 33 women. In addition, the boots and jacket that had been sitting in an evidence locker since 1997 were finally tested and they were found to contain DNA from Andrea Borhaven and Cara Ellis, two of the missing women. Personal belongings and DNA from Borhaven and Ellis would also be found in Willie's slaughterhouse. As more evidence was uncovered, Willie was charged with more murders. However, the DNA testing uncovered more than just evidence that dozens of women had lost their lives at the Picton farm. The Canadian health authorities had to issue a public warning about meat that had come from the farm and meat that had been served at Piggy's Palace and given to neighbours. Tests showed that it had been contaminated with human flesh. DNA from Inga Hall and Diane Felix was found in several packages of ground pork in a freezer on the property and human tissue was found in the meat grinder. Human DNA was also found in the barrel to use to transport scraps to the rendering plants, suggesting that Willie had disposed of some of his victims here as well. While Willie was in jail awaiting trial, he confessed to an undercover cop who was posing as a cellmate that he was going for the big 5-0, implying that he had killed 49 women. In all, he was charged with the murders of 27 women and he stood trial on January the 22nd, 2007. The judge decided that because of the sheer size and the complexity of the cases, the trial needed to be split in two. In addition, one of Willie's victims who had not been identified was dropped due to lack of evidence. The trial lasted for most of the year and on December 7th, 2007, he was found guilty on all counts, but not a first degree premeditated murder as he had been charged. The jury found him only guilty of second degree murder of six women because they believed that he was too slow to plan the murders. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years, the harshest sentence allowed under Canadian law. It was expected at some point that the prosecutors would be bringing Willie to trial for the other 20 women, probably as he neared his parole eligibility. However, in August of 2010, prosecutors made the controversial decision that they would not actually be prosecuting Willie Picton on any of the other 20 murders, on the grounds that even if he was convicted, it wouldn't actually make any difference to his sentence. So needless to say, many of the victim's families were absolutely disgusted by this. There was also outrage at the way the Vancouver police and the RCMP had allowed a serial killer to victimise women for at least a decade. So under public pressure, British Columbia launched an inquiry into how the case was handled. In December 2012, the commission investigating the case released their report. The report was titled Forsaken and appointed to blatant failures, inverted commas, by the police. This included inept criminal investigative work compounded by police and social prejudice against sex workers and indigenous women, which led to a tragedy of epic proportions. 
Former investigator on the case cited rampant misogyny and sexism in the RCMP as being a major barrier to this investigation in particular. One investigator said that there had been enough information in the case file to actually obtain a warrant to search Willie Picton's premises in 1997, but the RCMP did nothing. The inquiry recommended several reforms to prevent another case like Willie Picton's. This included increased cooperation among the various regional police forces, increased funding for emergency shelters for sex workers, investigating missing persons reports immediately and keeping those files open until they're resolved. While some of these reforms were adopted by the Vancouver Police, the RCMP remained resistant to change. As a federal public service agency, reforms can only be implemented by an act of parliament. Over the years, numerous sexual harassment and unnecessary use of force allegations would give rise to inquiries, which then recommended reforms and they'd die in Parliament. Soon after the Forsaken report was released, Vancouver Police Chief Jim Chu, who wasn't the chief during the Picton investigation, issued a public apology for not catching Willie Picton sooner. He went on to assure the public that his police department would treat missing persons from the downtown east side as a top priority from here on out. In January of 2014, Willie's brother David filed a statement of defence denying claims that he knew about or that helped cover up his brother's crimes. He said any offences committed by Willie were on the property solely occupied by Willie. In 1992, David was actually charged of sexually assaulting a woman in a trailer on a building site he was working at. He only received a year and a thousand dollars fine. But in 2014, she sued for compensation for psychological harm, loss of income and punitive damages over the 1991 assault and she won. The woman told the trial that Picton groped her and then he told her he was going to rape her while laughing. When the woman spoke out, she was told she would be killed and chopped up if she didn't get out of town. Jurors awarded the 55-year-old woman $45,000, including $20,000 in punitive damages, that the woman's lawyer said is intended as a deterrent. David Pickton was never accused or charged in connection with his brother's crimes. Upon hearing details of his own conviction, it's hard to believe he didn't really know or he'd no involvement himself at all. In 2016, Robert Picton's book, Picton, in his own words, was released and people went nuts. Amazon was pressured to pull the 144-page book down so that Picton would stop profiting off his crimes. The Colorado publisher said in a statement, We have a long-standing policy of not working with and not publishing work by incarcerated individuals. The publisher said Picton had misrepresented himself by seeking to publish the book using the name of a different person as the author. In 2018, Willie Picton was transferred from prison from Kent Institution in British Columbia for his own protection and so that he could access different programmes. He was moved to Port Cartier Institution in Quebec. Families of victims were absolutely disgusted by this decision of this whole cold-hearted murderer getting better treatment and they expressed concerns that if Picton comes up for parole it would be more difficult for the family members to make trips across to participate in his parole hearing. 
Canada is a massive continent, so this would be a 5,000 kilometer trip each way from Vancouver. Today, the Pictum Farm is engulfed by urban sprawl, and only a small fenced off area indicates where so many women lost their lives. So, yeah, there you have it. That's it. I, I don't really know what else to say. Just a very, very scary, scary man that a lot of people haven't heard about. I used to live in Canada and I'd never heard of this guy until someone mentioned him one day in work. And Vancouver is such a... It's such a progressive city and it's really... it's You feel really safe there. You know, so it is hard to believe that there are even even in the bad parts that this could happen, you know, but it did. So there you go. Never accept bacon from people you don't know. Uh, follow us on Worldwide Word Pod on Instagram. Leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts if you feel nice. It really helps. And we'll be back again next week. Bye.